You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions, or even the answers, are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host... Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and joining me, as always, is my trusty co-host, Ben Triplett. Ben, I have a question for you. Okay. The Olympics. The Olympics. Why? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I ask that same question sometimes. I don't know. We Kelly's a swimmer. She, yeah. she is born in a, a pool. I don't know if she literally was born in a pool, but um, she just swimming is in her blood. She loves it. And kind of by you, you talk a lot about how, you know, your kids love of things kind of makes you love it. a little Oh, yeah. More. That's yeah. how it's been with me and swimming. Can I vent for just a second? Oh, vent away. Uh, I have just recently learned that there are these the system that basketball players use. It, it, you wear like a sports bra looking thing. Um, and it tracks your movement and it's able to use computers and machines, um, to like analyze every little aspect of what mm-hmm. happens, like movement and, uh, the, the mechanics of the team and all this sorts of stuff. And then it spits out, you know, this data that you can analyze. And, and anyway, it's really annoying to me because especially in, I think on the NBA level, uh, people are able to afford it because there's a lot more money in the, on the college level. Uh, people are not able to afford it. Uh, so you have very few teams that have uh, access to this technology. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of a pet peeve of mine because it, it I don't know, it, it creates an unfair advantage. So I, I just was recently made aware of this. Um, and I think it, it kind of leads into to sort of the hypocrisy of what goes on with, you know, the Olympics and some of these other, like the World Cup and some of these big um, national displays of, of athletics. You know, there was a time where we sort of got behind the idea of it without really asking a ton of questions of what's going on. Now there's, I think, more access to information. Uh, more people are able to say, hey, people are spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on a facility mm-hmm. and it's not going to give anything to the country afterwards. So that's the thing with Brazil. You know, there's a ton of investment in this, in all these facilities. So the they made the Olympic Village for the people to stay in. And the idea was it was privately funded in Brazil and it was supposed to be this source of revenue after uh, the Olympics where people were, would be able to live in these buildings and once the um, once the athletes arrived, there are all these reports of like some places don't have plumbing, some places don't have electricity. That it was really almost a facade, and I, I don't know if if Brazil intentionally just you know made crummy uh, a crummy Olympic village, or what I'm thinking more so is they had the idea and they thought that it would generate revenue and so they invested all this money in into you know the olympics and the olympic village and just didn't have the 
any any sort of uh, gusto to kind of go through with it. And so mm-hmm. it's end, ended up costing people tons of money. Um, and I think another source of frustration is that a lot of people didn't want it. A lot of the Brazilian people said, you know, we would rather spend our money fixing the problems that already exist here. But the government said, eh, we're going to do this. We think it's a good idea. So I don't know, that sort of building what what's going on. I think the World Cup has seen a lot of those problems too. Well, I think anytime you have this much like money on the line, we, I mean, you would hope to think that people would handle it well and, mm-hmm. and, and appropriate it in the ways that uh, the money was meant to be appropriated. Right. But very rarely do we see this, especially when you see these on larger scale issues. Um, but I hated it. I mean, I guess because, again, I think we're talking about the whole tension between industry and like athleticism and sports. Because mm-hmm. uh, I remember my um, my dad has like historically back in the day was did uh, advertising marketing um, for various companies, and I remember him talking about talking to me about NASCAR, which which is the reason I think I remember it because we were not a NASCAR family. Yeah, um, we weren't either. Which I'm quite proud of that. I grew up in NASCAR um, country. Oh, we I, were yeah, not a NASCAR yeah, family. me as well. I've known people that just that would that would watch it, and I'm just like, but they just drive in a circle. Or maybe an oval. I don't know. Um, But one thing I remember that he had told me that it was he was working for a company and they were going to be a sponsor of a NASCAR car, Mm -hmm. I guess, or driver or however that works. But I remember that um, when he was talking with someone about this, they were essentially just saying, um, like, when you when you look at the cars, they essentially said, what place do you want to come in? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was based upon how much money they were going to give and how much they were putting into the car. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, so, I mean, again, it's kind of like the whole thing behind the Yankees, you know, the reason that they are competitive year after year is because they spend more money than everybody else. Right. Like you compare the Yankees to like the, um, like, uh, what is it? Like the Pittsburgh pirates or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, you have like these hugely different, um, amounts of money that they're spending, but they still compete against each other. They're like, they're on the same playing field. Mm-hmm. And, and so again, you know, that's one of those weird things to think about that, it has nothing to do with the sport. It has nothing to do with really just getting athletes on the field to be able to compete in a way that is more pure. Yeah. And, you know, especially on these like national levels of, of Olympics and world cup, it's, it, there are these like displays of nationalism, which I think 20 years ago, maybe it's just because I was, you know, in my teens, but it felt more real. Like you wanted to beat Russia in mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. hockey or you wanted to beat you know i, I never I, I didn't understand soccer well enough so i did, but i'm sure a lot of people wanted to beat brazil in soccer or, you know there are just sort of these national ties to certain things and the u.s tends to be good at you know most of the olympic sports but yeah it's it, kind of getting behind it seeing you know there's there's a huge expense to a lot of uh, countries funding. They build these coliseums for the ga- just for the games, mm-hmm. and then afterwards they're just kind of there. Yeah. Um, and and whether or not that's actually a good idea, like why are why are we doing this? Yeah, I mean, and and again, like I mean, I don't even know how this works. So again, I think we've we've, <laughs> we've jumped into a topic where I don't have an answer, which a simple Google search probably could have told me the answer but i mean i'm assuming each of these countries is is having to pay x amount of dollars yeah to to be able yes. to compete in this you know you, so you pay for you bid on having the games 
Yeah, you bet on having the games, but even like, how does this whole thing fund over? You know what I mean? Like, to yeah. The, yeah, I don't know. But um, I know that uh, Rio specifically has had to ask for some sort of federal grant just to have their opening ceremony because <laughs> they ran out of money. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's just so much money involved in, in all of this stuff. So and th- this is just like a dumpster fire waiting to happen. Right. And really, you, yeah. Yeah, you have all the other problems going on in Brazil. And I think that's what's frustrated people is they want to fix those problems. Yeah. They, they don't want to spend money on the Olympics. But, but yeah, so, so segueing-ish, mm-hmm. you know, I think into this, um, just talking about that tension between this thing, um, well, like the whole idea of sport versus mm-hmm. the whole idea of industry um, into this whole thing. That the we're, facade of sport versus the actual doing of sport. Yeah, and, and I think that the, some of this that we're going to hop into is talking about Tolstoy and that really tension between church and state mm-hmm. and uh, about how those how we either juggle or wrestle those things out can really influence the way that we read the Bible and faith and other mm-hmm. things of that nature. Can we talk about the snarky saints? Yes. Segment. Let's do that. Bit? Yeah. Like why why we're talking about Tolstoy at all? I think I I will give you the floor. We just had a had a brainchild of an idea that we would talk about what we're calling or, or who we are calling uh, snarky saints, mm-hmm. which are people throughout history that probably would not be sainted or. They, they have had very troubling ideas, um, but actually, I think, contribute a lot to um, just different perspectives of Christianity, because that's one thing we really want to do on this show. Probably the main thrust of snarky faith is to show that there are other perspectives of Christianity in the United States rather than sort of these uh, corporate, you know, uh, just the thing that, the things that we ran on a lot that there, you know, there are other perspectives of Christianity. And, um, you know, these are some of the people that have influenced uh, Stuart and myself, um, you know, in the ways that we're able to kind of see around or see uh, Christianity in a different light. Amen. Preach it. So bring it. Tol- so Tolstoy's one. Tolstoy is one of our snarky saints. Yeah. I wish we had some sort of like, oh. I know. I was thinking we need to have a little like snarky saint uh, sound I, effect. I will. Or I will. Something. I will write that down. Yeah, and probably lose it, and, <laughs> and then remember that I should have done it the next time we have our next snarky saint. Yeah, that's that's my mo. So Ben, let me ask you just a general uh, intro question then with our newly sainted Tolstoy. Uh, why is he a snarky saint? Well, he's, Which I know is going to encompass the entire conversation we're having today, but yeah. give us a little intro. I just think, I think he's interesting because he uh, is one of the earlier voices for um, Christian pacifism. I, well, I mean, pacifism has been an idea in, in the church for millennia, but I think kind of our modern, there, there is a modern voice in, in the church uh, on sort of radical pacifism and what that means especially when contrasted with the idea of the state church. Um, and we talk a lot about how the religious right has really latched onto this idea that our faith is tied to our politics and our voting. Um, and there, there is a pushback against that, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, that being a Christian actually means not supporting military, not supporting sort of state religion. 
Um, so, and, and these, these are, some of the people are from the evangelical church that are supporting this sort of new radical pacifism. Um, and Tolstoy, I think, is one of the uh, progenitors in the modern era of seeing kind of the ickiness of the church and state being together, being in bed together. So he, and, and another thing, I guess, to throw in there is that he's a really good writer, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's written. Uh, that's an understatement. Very eloquent, nuanced uh, books about his ideas. So it, that's, you know, he's not just a Joe Schmo on the street that said, hey, pacifism. Not that that would be a bad thing, but it just makes it a little more interesting when you write a thousand-page novel about the nuances of how the government can sort of control people in one direction or another. Wait, the government controls one direction? Oh. Are they state-sponsored? Is that BBC-sponsored, maybe? <laughs> um, Wait, they're from Australia, right? I'm pretty sure they're British. Are they British? Okay. Yeah. Well, I just, uh, I guess, confirmed that I'm not a One Direction fan. Oh, I I think you were just using that. You were like playing dumb. Like, what? What? Where are they from? Yeah. Uh, no, because um, I do. I've been to your house, and you do have a Harry Styles poster over your bed, mm. and so he tells you good night. Oh um, my goodness! Yeah, you did make fun of me for watching Fuller House, or no, Girl Meets World. No, I didn't make fun of you for that. I mean, because I've watched Fuller House. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I was better off by after watching it, but um, <laughs> I mean, it, it just was. Yeah, it just happened. Yeah. You don't know how it happened, but it happened. It did, it did. Um, No, and so, but with that, I mean, I think that, like, a lot of the things that you punctuated there, I I think oftentimes, and and I think you did it very eloquently beginning this show about why we're doing these things that we're doing here, but I think so many things, and I think this is kind of a Tolstoy thing as well, is that things go unchecked. Like, a lot of times within, whether it be within the Christian faith um, or really just in, in everyday lives, I think a lot of times we there's this um, tendency to just accept things for the way they are mm-hmm. and just continue to just walk through life in that manner and not necessarily challenge the powers that be, challenge the prevailing wisdom of the time or the thought mm-hmm. processes or the doctrine or the dogma, you know, of, mm-hmm. of, of kind of um, whatever institution is hovering over you. And I think that that's... Um, it's a huge thing when we especially begin to, I mean, we're, we're mired in, I'm so tired of it. We're mired in this whole political season mm-hmm. that hopefully will be done. It will be one way or another by no, come November. Mm-hmm. But the hard thing is I feel like I'm already tired of it and, and it has only just begun to ramp up. Yeah. Um, and we have much more of this, but beginning to, to look at this, that, you know, I know that if anyone's listened to the show for any period of time, would not be surprised that we're railing against the moral majority, the religious right, all that kind of other stuff. But I, but I think it's not simply we're using them as a punching bag, but I, I would say a lot of how they have blended Christianity and politics and really attached it in a nationalistic sense. I mean, it makes me sick. Like, it makes me kind of sick, and I don't know, it's like my the faith part of me wants to throw up. When, we, when I think about how far things have been moved off the trail... Mm-hmm. Um, within that. And I think that to go back and begin to read things like Tolstoy and begin to think about, well, during his time period, <laughs> this was going on as well mm-hmm. um, in a different sense. I mean, you know, whoever the institution is may change, but just all these truths continue to 
to run through with us. And, and I love just how you're bringing about, again, one of the reasons that we would say he is one of our snarky saints, you know, is, is the fact that he beat that drum, that nonviolence is at the core of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Like, if you take that away, I mean, it's not the gospel without nonviolence. I mean, right. you know, that's, I mean, if, if, I mean, just look at the way, you know, Jesus moved t- towards his death. Um, in that, I mean, again, talking about turning the other cheek and then walking it out in, in real life where you're beaten and killed um, for this. And I don't see how you get anything other than nonviolence. I don't see you get, how you get anything other than, than, than pacifism if Jesus is involved. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, don't, I, just, I just do not understand how any, there, there's counter thinking to what we're talking about here in this. Yeah. And you know don't... what I'm saying? Like when you approach the gospel, I'm like, huh? Like, I mean, like, how does it go any other way than that? I don't know. And I, I think one of the one of the probably most controversial things about Tolstoy for especially for Christians, I think, would be that he felt that um, kind of like Jefferson, Jefferson, mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Jefferson sort of wrote his own version of the Gospels because he felt that the miracles and all these other things that were going on sort of. Uh, didn't make sense, but he really liked the teaching of Jesus, so he just pulls out the miracles. And Tolstoy did more or less the same thing. He, but he felt that the miracles and the superstition, the or the supernatural sort of stuff, were um, added to distract from the teachings of Jesus. Um, and so that you know, that's obviously pretty controversial that you would cut out a ton of the gospel to sort of get to these things. Um, but I think kind of going along with what you're saying, he felt that the most important thing, the thing that you had to focus on as a Christian were these really tough teachings like the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. these things that people do tend to kind of uh, either, I would say, like spiritualize or make, you know, idealize, you know, to make easier um, versus really just taking them at face value. Uh, because to let sort of someone do violence on you and to not retaliate for Tolstoy, that was the very base fundamental thing of what Jesus taught and why he was so interesting and radical. Um, and, you know, to kind of get caught up in everything else for, for Tolstoy was to distract away from this, like the, the most fundamental thing. Um, so, you know, not kind of taking one side or another on that, Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to note that um, it, it's it's really tough to like grapple with that part of Jesus, and and I kind of gleaned some from what you were saying that that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah, but. I mean, um, well, and, and I think just really pushing for <laughs> pushing further that idea that that the idea of of the gospel and that nationalism. Um, or the state, or national identity, all these other things that they are they're incompatible with one another. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that the, the, like this is a simple truth. That again, I guess we could continue to say this, but I, I mean, when when you begin to look at like the landscape of American Christianity, um, because again, Tolstoy, I mean, same stuff happening during his time. I mean, j- with just different names. You know, different government, different you know issues, different. But but when we look at this, I, I just again, I, I just 
I slow down like I'm talking to my kids when somehow I've told them to do something and um, and I need to repeat it just so they get it, mm-hmm. which you'll learn this, Ben. Okay. You know, just kind of you do. I didn't this. get it the first time. Oh. So. <laughs> Tell me. No, but where you slow it down and you and you just kind of just just uh, say it. Just what I'm saying is that that this stuff is incompatible. Like that 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 love of the state and love of Jesus do not go together. Right. You know that that it's impossible. That, That's that, what Tolstoy would say. Yes. That it's impossible. It's impossible. And. So this idea that somehow that they can be grafted together, which is what we've seen, you know, we've, we've done other shows that you can catch, uh, if you could just go to our website, you know, on uh, really the rise and fall of the religious right and other things of that nature. Um, and if you see stuff going on, like we were seeing politicizing our faith and everything else that's happening consistently during this election cycle, but those, like, again, I'm just going to say it slowly, like, those two things are incompatible. Like, the idea mm-hmm. of church and state, no, no, there's the church and then there's the state. Like, they're incompatible with one another. They have totally different goals. They have totally different ethics. They have totally different values. They have totally different directions that they're moving in. And the idea that we like to try to smush them together, it makes no sense. And what I would say is... Um, ultimately, when you kind of combine this idea of the political machine or the nationalistic machine um, and use Christian terminology and bring Jesus into it, it it's, not, it's not Christianity anymore. Right. That's what definitely you know what, I mean? what Tolstoy would say. And yeah, I think... It's a thing, but it's not, like, it's not Jesus at all anymore. And I think for that's what where you start to get really into the interesting side of Tolstoy that... He, he saw this um, phrase, the kingdom of God, and seeing that that was different than the church, quote-unquote. So for him, the church had sort of become the same thing as the government, where you have this like institution with rules and uh, trying to sort of control people's behavior, uh, forcing them to do one thing or another. Um, I mean, that's basically what a government is doing, that you owe debt to it, um, you know, so for Tolstoy, the state, it, it controls people by, you know, either violence, which is kind of an overt. I mean, I think people understand that governments throughout history have been violent to people, uh, also controlling through debt. So I think in his time and especially before then you had taxes, you know, owed to the to owed to the state. Mm-hmm. I think in ours, in our country, I mean, we do have taxes. I would say it, it gets even more murky with debt and credit yeah. and that, that whole idea that, you know, people don't feel like they belong to a You know, they're not full adults and citizens because they don't have like car debt or house debt and things, you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very insidious. So there are taxes, but then there's like debt and credit and things like that. Um, and just being able to sort of manipulate or, uh, control the way that people like gather and identify um, it, and through different means. So for Tolstoy, that's that's not the kingdom of God. Like the kingdom of God is not a system of control and sort of violence and forcing people to be one way or another. It's um, it's like a lifestyle, a way of living of uh, sort of non-resistance to the control and the force and the violence that comes on people. And for him, and I mean, people can people might completely reject this and say this is pie in the sky thinking. But to Tolstoy, 
to be a Christian meant that you have this sort of radical hope that by being nonviolent and by being non-resistant to those sorts of things that exist out there that look like government and institutional control and that sort of stuff, that over time that it would change people, that the non-resistance to violence eventually would change violent people into nonviolent people. Um, which is, I mean, that's extremely radical. I know that a lot of people hear it and just think it's silly, but he believed that was the very heart, fundamental essence of Christianity. Well, and I, th- and I would agree with him in that factor. And I think most of the time when we see this happening in the world, people give up too quickly, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. You know what I mean? In, in order to be able to see change happen, especially when it comes into um, to seeing change through nonviolent means. And and again, like what you, I, I just I just kind of I love how you're 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 saying this that especially when you begin to like look at the way the world works, right? You know, if you're comparing you know institutions and governments and things of that nature, I mean, really, their whole goal is to amass power mm-hmm. or influence or wealth or something of that nature. And when you begin to look at the way the the kingdom of God is meant to be through the way Jesus talked about it, it's absolutely opposite and counter to that. You know, because if, if I'm going to amass power or wealth, um, for me to, to get more of those things, it means someone must go without. Mm-hmm. And I know this is a very simple point that I'm... <laughs> Um, you know, for me to get more, it means you have to have less, you know, you, I think a lot of times we tend to sort of skip that part. Yeah. I mean, but if you look at, I mean, look at the wealth structure, look at how the stock market works, look at those that, you know, again, we talk about like the one percenters and everything else like that too. I mean, the, the, and again, I I, always get back to politics in this, but you know, the idea that there's a shrinking middle class that the, that the, um, well, like the lower class is growing, not lower class. I mean, what's a better way for me to say I'm lower class. Yeah. I am too. Um, uh, but like, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And that kind of is just the way the world works. And that's mm-hmm. always worked in that way. And any kind of thing that, that is anytime that you are part of that system, mm-hmm. you know, means that you're not part of God's kingdom mm-hmm. in that. And again, I'm not doing this like you're not going to heaven, all this kind of, I'm, but I'm just saying is it's a system that is absolutely counter um, in thought and indeed from really just, the the values that Jesus is laying forth, which again, I think the values and the ethics of this kingdom are what Tolstoy um, grabbed onto. Yeah. So, and that's getting kind of to the the meat of why. So we have an article here by Giles Fraser. Um, Tolstoy's Christian anarchism was a war on both church and state, and it. But it, it's it's kind of a nice article that succinctly kind of goes through why Tolstoy became a Christian um, because he, he grew up, he did not grow up religious uh, either way. I, I think probably in um, his early adulthood, he probably was closer to like a Buddhist or, you know, just mm-hmm. sort of, um, but yeah, so he, he just had this like existential crisis at some point that he knew that he was going to die um, and that he felt like life had no meaning mm. if if he were to die. Like, what's the point of, you know, he grew up in, in a wealthy family and he, he did have sort of a culturally easy position, I think, growing up. He did fight in the army. I'm not 100% sure if uh, you had to do that. I think you did have to do that as a Russian male. Um, but 
anyway, so, I mean, he had a pretty cushy upbringing, had one of these sort of bourgeois, like, what does it all mean moments? Um, but he, it was, it's, in, what's interesting, I think, about Tolstoy is that he found his answer in, um, the peasants in poor people. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that, like, if you ever read War and Peace, the peasants are kind of the somewhat invisible and yet probably the most important characters in the, mm-hmm. I mean, they're not invisible. He, I don't think anyone's really, I don't know if many people are invisible in War and Peace. He has like a million characters in that book, but they are extremely important to the character arcs. So even though you have this sort of upper class and, it's always fun to, you know, you don't want to watch a rom-com where all the people are working in like diners and real people jobs. Yeah. Uh, everyone's like an architect or a, you know, a doctor or lawyer or something like that. That uh, So you have that kind of character structure in War and Peace, but then you have these peasants and the peasants are where the real change comes from throughout the book. Um, so, and that's, that's biographical to Tolstoy. He saw this sort of simplicity in peasant life that they were able to kind of accept death with, I mean, they had not much if anything, and yet they were very hopeful and um, they were able to accept their own death. And that, I mean, is that not like the essence of the Sermon on the Mount? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So for him, it was a very real, there wasn't a whole lot of um, sort of outward uh, having to, like think around all these problems and make up things so that you can fool people into, you know, believing Jesus's teachings. He saw it in the faces of the peasants. Mm. He's like, this is it right here. This makes sense to me now. So you'd mentioned his like epiphany moment, you know, of kind of coming to this place of being able to say, what is this all about? Mm-hmm. Can you do that in a Russian accent? <laughs> I, I do not. I cannot do a Russian accent. You we can't. need George here. <laughs> uh, yes, true. Epi- epiphany. No, that's terrible. I'm not gonna. No, it is because it. Every, well, I think anytime you're doing, it always kind of goes to uh, what is it like? Bor- Arnold, Boris, and Natasha, or Arnold too. I yeah. always go to Arnold. Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe Boris. Yeah, what what these things all about? You know? No, that. See that? I'm not even. I'm terrible. I'm epiphany. not. Epiphany. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not even gonna do it. I'm not good at impressions. I look in faces of peasants. <laughs> it just sounds like some sort of Bond villain. <laughs> it's terrible. That's true. Uh, no, but I, but I think that that when we're talking about our snarky saints, and I, I just I use this as just kind of a like a side to what we're talking about, you know I think a lot of times when when we look at it, especially I think how we've been brought up um, within American evan even in like the American evangelical church, I mean, mm-hmm. well, for what we would call a saint, which we wouldn't use that term in the evangelical church you know, being Catholic, but like the people that we idolize need to be people that are perfect. Yeah. You know, in the eyes of, yeah. Or, or we like whitewash like the history of who they are. And and I, and I love the fact that, that we were able to, to not agree necessarily with everything, you know, we're Tolstoy is coming out with this. Mm -hmm. Um, meaning that, you know, he's like, I get these parts of the gospel. This part doesn't mean, you know, like the whole like supernatural stuff, you know, we don't have to like cling to everything, that person was was saying or doing because in all honesty, I don't know if there's anybody that is 100% right or 100% wrong in anything, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But I, but I feel like that we've a lot of times, especially like with 
within just the way the cultural church works. Like we, you know, everyone is either, it's, you know, either a heretic that needs to be burned or they're an absolute saint in that way. And I think I like, I like the fact that we, we're starting with a person that, I don't know, I feel like snarky saints need to be people that have dirt under their fingernails. Oh, yeah. That don't that's that don't have it all figured out, but I think but that actually leads us in directions that challenge us that we can glean from that we are left at the end of this that we have to wrestle out the implications of how this person was wrestling out other implications, mm-hmm. you know, within his, his own space. So I love kind of the unfinishedness, the rawness of all of this, and I think he fits well within that. Yeah, and it kind of talking about this makes me think one one thing. I tend to catch about myself that I, one of the principles I think of Christianity that means a lot to me is that we owe a debt of love to everybody. Yeah. That that to me is one of the fundamental things about Christianity that I, I owe a debt of love to every single person. And it's, it's much easier for me to owe that debt of love and to show that and for it to manifest for, you know, um, certain types of people not necessarily rich people or people that are successful and, and, you know, that sort of thing. Tolstoy was rich. He, uh, I think if I were living in 19th century Russia, that I probably would be really mad at him and I would, you know, (laughs) grimace and make fun of him and complain on, you know, Russian 19th century podcast, whatever that was like a pamphlet or something <laughs> about this like rich, richy, rich guy that gets to write, you know, sit around and write thousand page novels. Um, but I mean, you know, it, God obviously like reached him and changed his mind in some way. And I think it can come from anywhere. And I think it's most surprising that for him, it came from the meek. Um, so I don't know. I, I Which just, would be very Jesus-y. Yeah. Very Jesus-y. You know? Just flipping the world on its head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think another thing about Tolstoy that I, I appreciate, generally when people hear the word anarchy, it comes with, you know, this notion of like the Joker where you're just going around sort of creating chaos for chaos yeah. sake. You're violent. Um, you know, you're potentially angry or I don't know. A lot of the kind of anarchist people I've met haven't necessarily been angry. They're actually pretty pleasant. But there is always this sort of underlying notion that you got to be doing something mm-hmm. that it's it tends to be sort of violent or forceful. Um, and Tolstoy, I mean, he you know he's he is labeled as a Christian anarchist mm-hmm. by a lot of people. I, I definitely would say he's giving a different perspective on anarchy as well. That you don't you would never be violent. That's the essence of what he's doing is to not be violent. So in this, um, and this is kind of right in your your wheelhouse, I feel like, um, or um, whatever, like I don't know your 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 passion sack, if there's such my a thing. Uh, yeah, it's my your, servants' quarters it's <laughs> in your servants' quarters. No, but I mean, in this, you know, Tolstoy would say that the gospel um, implies anarchism. Yes, absolutely. Okay. How so, Ben? I know this is one of your passion. Well, it's yeah. just, uh, and, and I kind of hope at the end of these things that we'll be able to sort of summarize, wh- like, why, you yeah. know, what these people have meant to us in little, maybe palatable bites. Uh, but one, I guess one of the big things about sort of the Christian anarchists that have influenced me, and Tolstoy definitely, this is one of the thrusts of his thought, is that people are so easily duped by 
these kind of like big ideological structures like government. Um, it's not that, you know, I, I am a healthcare worker. Uh, government is helping to pay my salary. So it's not that these things aren't out there and, and working and functioning. Um, for Tolstoy, I think the danger is that people come to rely on them as the as sort of the um, structure or the thing that like gives them uh, credibility, that gives them identity as a person. Um, and it's very dangerous. It, I mean, the, sort of the obvious thing that everyone goes to is that you know, in a fascist sort of government, there's an overt control over people, and then you get like Nazi Germany or something like that. Mm-hmm. I most hopefully most people would agree that that's not cool that, that that's not a good thing. I think the the scary part about government and especially not just government I keep saying government but the idea of government is that it it can control in a very insidious way. And we talk about that a lot on the show that you know for example I think in the media right now and I'm not taking sides one way or the other but I think it's very easy to take shots at the political right. I think that the political right is becoming a, a very archaic sort of uh, thing that belongs to an older generation. And the generation that does tend to use media, at least it, this is in my experience, definitely, that it's very easy to criticize because we tend to align with uh, the left. So the scary thing or the sort of insidious thing about that is you're still aligning with the left. You're yeah. still not necessarily thinking for yourself. You're letting someone else do your thinking for you. And for Tolstoy, that, it's, that's the wrong way to, to be because you're still being controlled. You're still sort of letting yourself be um, a part of this thing that's telling you how to act that has been around for millennia and that Jesus was trying to sort of offer an exit door from, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's it's more about the ideas that like float over people's heads and that they just so easily subscribe to without really ever thinking, like, why am I doing this? Well, and in this, um, the article that we were going through with uh, by Frazier, I, I love how he summarizes up a lot of stuff. And I think that in many ways we could spend a whole other part of the show just um, talking through what that what that looks like. But um, he said here in, in the article, it says, Tolstoy reminds us that to be a Christian is to be a fool and a social outcast, that everyone who wishes to follow Christ has to be prepared to die as an enemy of the state, nailed to the cross. Um, it's a little bit uh, more than a few verses of shine, Jesus shine on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and and I think that, like, that summarizes up a lot of what we're getting at here. You know, within that, I think that um, one of the things that you talked about, you know, us being able to, to talk about why we do the things that we do here um, on the show and what we like to rail against within that, you know, I, I think that, that you're absolutely right, Ben, how you were talking about that it's not simply just uh, walking away from one political party or one political side to move to the other one. It's the idea of walking away from it altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very different, you know, not just saying is, oh, these, I mean, because I think that, I mean, if during this, this election cycle, if, if the fact that all of this is corrupt and really has nothing to do with us, um, I feel like this has been a resounding like uh, cycle for president that tells us that, that yeah. ultimately we don't matter. We are fooled into thinking that we matter, 
but really it's about people amassing power. I mean, we've seen how, like with all the DNC email leaks about how that whole... (laughs) The Democratic Party was totally slanted against Sanders the whole time. And then you also look at how like the Republicans and Trump are kind of imploding on themselves right now. Mm-hmm. But again, it, it has nothing to do with us as a people. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with it. I mean, we like to get... We, we, I mean, because this ends up almost being like, you know, uh, sports rivalries, kind of where we're at right now. We all think that we're a part of it, but we're not the people on the field. Right, um, right. And we're the people that pay to go to see those sports and pay money to, 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 to uh, well, I mean, and, and pay to like buy jerseys and paraphernalia. Uh, we waste our time sitting and watching those on TV and we're advertised to when in reality we have nothing to do with the whole process. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and I feel like with, within politics, and I think a lot of what Tolstoy is getting at within this is this is it's a corrupt system. And that doesn't really give a rip about us, the people. And, and for us to align ourselves with that, it's, it's foolishness. And, I mean, one of the things, too, and I go back to uh, more and more, I think one of the purposes of even having this show, and, and I liked you using the word insidious, um, but one of the things we talk about is, is honestly, and I want to say this, as much as we speak about government, I think there's an insidious nature to the, uh, the American church mm-hmm. um, within this. Um, say more. And, well... You know, I think that, you know, it's easy for us to talk about the church um, versus the state, that they're incompatible. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that makes sense. But I also think when we look at the institutional church and we look at how it looks simply like every other business out there, that that mm-hmm. um, in the goals, um, well, and, I mean, if you think about this, if if you look at the goals of any business, A, it's to make money. It's to grow, it's to amass more power, it's to make more money, and then it's also to drive down the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, that's the way church is today, too, right? I mean, we see these, uh, these huge mega churches that, are, that go into areas, squash out smaller churches. Mm-hmm. They grow, they amass power. Uh, the pastors get bigger platforms and find varying other ways to make money because, again, they're starting a brand, Mm-hmm. Right and and getting followers behind all of this nature because again, we're still working in those corrupt systems um, where it's simply about getting power, getting wealth, and and things of that nature. And so one of my and I, and I'll say this pretty strongly. I mean, I feel like most and I'm not saying everywhere, but I th- most of the American church, the way that it has evolved into, I feel like. I mean, again, this is some of us, you know, how we're bouncing off of talking about anarchy and anarchism um, within all of this. I feel like the institution of the church has become something that is corrupt. I feel like it's something that um, says it does one thing and says it's about Jesus and says it's about changing lives, but really it's about self-preservation of the organization, the institution, and the system that we're doing. To kind of piggyback on that, I think sort of an example would be Um, You know, whereas I think people are sort of duped into supporting like a political party or a a political like person that in churches, they it's not that people get up. I mean, some people actually do get up in front of congregations and say, we're going to make money. Um, I think more often than not, uh, you get up in front of the church and you say, this is what we could do. If we just had this money, think about what we could do. Think about how many people we could reach. Mm-hmm. And they'll give like concrete examples that seem, you know, great. Like we could go buy a house for someone or we could give cars away to people. Um, 
I mean, what that, you know, and again, not addressing every specific instance, but what that does is it reiterates the system that already exists, that people are able to sort of buy into our economic system of capitalism, that giving a car to someone or giving a house to someone will somehow make them a better person. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I know that there are like food pantries that are uh, created in churches and things like that to help people. But I think a lot of times when you start looking at those bigger, um, you know, we're going to buy a jet for me so that I can fly to places and and give inspirational speeches. I mean, that, that is a little more obvious thing for people to become sick at. But I think that, you know, getting back to that sort of being duped into buying into the system that a megachurch will say, you know, we can do this, this, and this if we amass this amount of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can go and build, like, some sort of building in a different country for people. But, I mean, what what is that actually doing for them? Yeah. You know, if we do go and build, like, let's say we build a, a church, like, in, you know, Africa somewhere, like an African country. or Yeah, well, for missions, Africa is always sexy. Yeah, or building, like, church, yeah. building like a school somewhere um, in, in South America. Like, what is that actually going to look like? Who are the people that will be there sort of educating? How will that affect people 15, 20 years down the road? I don't know if we always think about that sort of stuff. Um, it, it tends to be more like, let's just raise some money. You know, and and in that process, the church actually becomes more profitable and more wealthy. Um, and instead of sort of getting behind, like, what's actually going on here? Yeah. I mean, or you end up doing this charge for whatever X um, mission or, you know, and and you do that and then you move to the next one. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, 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 you know, we Let's have... Let's do another one. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we need to do this to fix these people. Great. Look what we've done. Let's celebrate ourselves. Now there'll be another one there. I mean, or even furthermore, like, if we're just talking about these institutions. I mean, just look at any church's budget. Oh. You know, if you're talking about like, oh, let's go to Africa and let's do all this. I mean, if we hypothetically went there and built a school in a way that made sense, that wasn't uh, being like the big white saviors and all that kind of stuff. I'm not even talking about that, you know, which does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm just saying is even just look at budgets and how much money people that these churches are doing to invest in wherever the, the mission field that they're talking about, whether it's the neighborhood or whether it's overseas, you know. I mean, typically, most uh, church institutions, you're going to find, I mean, most of the budget is just going to be in staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the production that comes on Saturday morning, or yeah. Sunday oh, morning. It's, well, yeah, everything's me. oriented around the, the show on Sunday morning. And um, yeah, and so, again... Fog machines are expensive. They are. Well, it's not the machine. It's the long-term use of it. You've got to get the, like, what is it, the liquid fog? The dry ice, yeah, or the liquid fog. Yeah, whatever that is. Yeah. I don't know. Um, no, no, but, but I mean, all that aside, I, I just think that that when we see centralized hierarchical structures, um, I think Tolstoy would be telling us, run away. Or at, at the very I mean, least, don't, you know, maybe to bring a little Pete Rollins in uh, to this conversation, like if you're going to be a part of it, at least know what you're a part of. Yeah. And yeah. you can speak out against it while you're there. I like that better. That was that was a I think that was a more nuanced answer than mine was. I feel um, like, uh, and I think the irony in what you're saying, I like that you're bringing bringing this up. That you know, for Tolstoy, I mean, he already was rich. He he was yeah, yeah. He came from a place of pretty good benefit from his family, and yet he found his 
solution to his existential crisis in poor people. Um, so instead of sort of trying to go and like bring something to them, they were the ones who brought something to him. Mm. Um, and I think that too is kind of at the, the, to me at least at the essence of Christianity, especially in the sermon on the Mount, you know, blessed are the meek because they're going to inherit the earth. There's something about people. Um, uh, uh, there's something about people that are marginalized or people that are invisible that we tend to look overlook all the time that Jesus saw and said, look, that that's where you need to be looking. That's where you need to be paying attention. And for Tolstoy, he did somehow by the grace of God, he did pay attention to the peasants and it like completely changed his life. Well, and I think, I think of this, um, just even, I mean, I get, one, I mean, I think central to everything we can, we, we've said this in many, many, many shows, you know, I think that the central teachings of Jesus are summarized up in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think anyone's going to argue that point. Um, but you know, one thing I've, I've, I've learned having kids, um, is that for them to understand something, for them to, to get to a point of having something integrated into their lives, it takes a lot of repetition. It takes a lot of trial and error. You know, it, it, it takes a lot of just continuing to hammer home an idea. Um, and I mean, well, I mean, I guess you could say that with anything. If you're learning a musical instrument, it takes a lot of practice in that mm-hmm. way. Um, in very few places do, do I want, or, and again, I'm, I'm speaking very, uh, well, I'm throwing a blank, you know, I, I'm just kind of casting a huge blanket over stuff. And so there's going to be churches that probably do this right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, just let that be known. But when I speak, you know, in, in, generalization or generalized terms um, within that, you know, I think that when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, when we go through some of these line by line, you know, I think some of these are things like you're not going to see on a Sunday morning um, where we go back again and say, okay, we've been talking about this for the past three weeks and we're going to talk about it again. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're going to keep talking this through or we're going to keep wrestling this through together until we really understand what this means. Because if you see Sunday morning as a production it's always about getting something new and something exciting and, you know, another good performance, mm-hmm. you know, to move forward. Um, you're not going to see somebody continuing to, to hit those same things over and over and over and over and over again until you as a community um, have wrestled this out well or able to see the meek or able to live in and amongst the meek. You know, it's not simply just seeing them as people that need to be fixed, but I think that for some of these things that Jesus is outlining, like through the Sermon on the Mount, these are things that you wrestle through for the rest of your life, which is what Mm -hmm. I know Tolstoy is getting at. You know, these are things that aren't just some like, oh, I got it. Good. I've got that. Now I'm moving on. You know what I mean? Like these are things that require so much of us. Which is why War and Peace is like a thousand pages and not to read it requires so much of it. Yeah, but I mean, Uh, no, seriously though, because I mean, if you follow like Bezhikov, for example, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but one of the main characters, um, you know, he starts out and he goes, he does go through these various institutions. Um, You know, he's married at one point, which is an institution, uh, especially in that day, it was a very political thing. Um, You know, he joins a religion, he joins the Masons. Um, he's part of like military. He has, he has these various relationships. Um, and there's just this huge arc and it takes him pretty much the whole book for, to sort of reach that point at which he finally gets what he was looking for. Um, and I, I think a lot of people speculate that he is sort of Tolstoy's 
uh, biography to some extent. I probably changed some somewhat, but I mean, it kind of gets that. It takes a dedication. I mean, you can't just stop at when he joins the Masons. It is a really cool part, um, but you know, you have to keep going within the arc, and it takes that struggle over a thousand pages for him to sort of reach this like deep underst- deeper understanding of of life and. Um, you know, I think it, for Tolstoy, it was that way as well, that it, it was just, it was a long struggle, a long journey towards this sort of peace that he saw in, in Jesus's teachings. Well, uh, as we start to get to the end of this, um, I want us to kind of try to, I think you, you, you hit about this earlier, um, kind of a summarize up some of our reasons that we are saying Tolstoy is one of our snarky scenes. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, like yeah. let's let's kind of just like we're solidify as we're kind of in the end the end of this. But I think that, um, yeah, for when, when I begin to think through this and when I begin to think about his influence on this, um, it just it just continues to hit me. And it's this is stuff I'm still wrestling through. I mean, I feel like I'm very I'm very much an unfinished product that's that's still like challenged by all of this. But I mean, I think that when we say when we look at who the people of God should be, because again, it's hard for us to say church and have people not think institution. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I've heard people it will say, well, there's big C church and little C church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still confusing, I think. But like when we talk about the people of God, the people that, that follow after uh, the teachings of Jesus in all of this, you know, I think that, that one thing I'm getting from, from this and from Tolstoy and, and, and I continue to, to wrestle with this in my own life, you know, is it that, I think we are always required to be actively engaged in the world around us. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that we are called to always be thinking. I think that we're called to challenge the prevailing powers that exist. Um, I think that we are called to be critical of stuff. I think that we're called to get pissed off about stuff. Um, but at the same time, we're also called to love others. <laughs> we're called to be nonviolent. We're called to uh, just care for those who have no voice. Um, we're called to be sacrificial in all of this. And there's a tension between all of that. Uh, but I think that tension, you know, is, is kind of really what ends up being the core of who we are. I mean, I think we have to constantly be living in that tension. And if we're not, I, I think that we've just turned off our brains and decided to sit in a church on a Sunday morning and have become institutionalized. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What are your summarizing thoughts? I think uh, just for one, it's that to appreciate the meek and to, you know, listen and really pay attention to sort of invisible or marginalized people. And also just the idea that we so easily subscribe to ideas and, and um, sort of identifiers of ourselves. You know, I'm, I'm a citizen of this country or I'm a part of this party. I'm this and I'm that. Um, but to really only be ruled by I am a Christian. Mm. and to let that define who you are. Mm, that's good. So is he our first? Is this our he first? He our first. All right, Tolstoy is our first snarky saint. Uh, but we, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon how you feel about this episode, we uh, unfortunately are out of time. So just a reminder, as we end this broadcast, that you can catch us on podcast at www.snarkyfaith.com. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Just look up Snarky Faith. We're also on iTunes. 
We uh, would love it if you'd go and give us a review over there. Only positive, really, right? We only want the, you to say nice things about us because we're uh, an insecure podcast about ourselves. I'm kidding. But, um, but yeah, uh, and we uh, love answering uh, questions and getting topics and getting feedback from people, too. So you can always uh, shoot us an email at questions at snarkyfaith.com. But that is all the time we've got this week, and we will catch you again next week. We are out of here. WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Aqueduct Conference Center was established in 1978 as a peaceful destination for small group meetings, special events, conferences, retreats, and weddings. For more information, go to www.aqueductcc.com. We are also sponsored by Lumen. Lumen a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, question askers, doubters, and skeptics, is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be better than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com. <laughs>